Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 20 in our series for 2019, and today's date is Friday, June the 14th. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. First, I talked to Chris Croker, the Managing Director of Impact Investment Partners, and they're setting up an exciting and innovative Indigenous Infrastructure Investment Fund. And then I'll be talking to ComSec economist Craig James about what trends we can expect in the market for the week ahead. But now, let's talk to Chris Croker. Chris Croker, tell us about the Indigenous Infrastructure Investment Fund. The the Indigenous Infrastructure Investment Fund is um, quite an exciting concept. Um, you know, built on well, my, my personal experience. I'm, um, I'm Aboriginal. My family's from the Central Desert. I grew up in many Aboriginal communities. You're a Larija man. Larija man, yeah. yeah. So I've seen firsthand the, um, you know, the 
deficit or deficiencies in Indigenous communities, which you, you think, well, the times have moved on from, you know, previous generations where there were a lot of systematic issues. You know, we would think today, modern, modern society, um, you know, we, we will all enjoy access to the same opportunities and um, in essential services, such as water and housing and electricity and access to medical care and things like that. But Which, of course, doesn't happen in the Indigenous communities. It doesn't happen, that's right. That deficit is still there. Um, and, you know, I was just actually talking to a good friend of mine from um, Sydney, and she works in um, uh, women's justice and health issues, healthcare. That's, she's been in the industry, well, that service area for all her life, 40 years or something like that. Um, and... It, those deficiencies are actually in our big cities as well. Um, it's not just confined to the very remote regions. That's where my family live in the central desert, where it's just literally you know, hundreds, if not you know, thousands of kilometres from the major cities. Um, it's actually in Sydney and Melbourne as well. Playing out in different degrees, we see it you know, um, manifest. So, yeah, so the infrastructure fund is, um, in a, you know, so a concept that we've been working on to um, to utilise both Indigenous capital, I can explain this concept around um, Indigenous capital and what I call socially minded capital, so capital that, um, you know, is already invested in doing good um, and through the ESG type focuses, you know, um, whether it's in equities or investments, direct in properties and assets utilising those two pools of capital to actually invest in or finance better solutions to deliver better social outcomes, provide access to clean drinking water. Um, We can fix that lack of clean drinking water, safe drinking water, by our investment in an engineering solution to provide, you know, treat the water that's already there, remove the impurities and deliver better quality water to the town. So tell us about this indigenous capital. What is it? So um, it's so coming out of you know different determinations, and we just had our Mabo Day yesterday. That's right, June the third. Um, that's right, um, which is the anniversary of the Mabo decision. So recognizing or overturning this terranulius, this quite foreign concept, you know. And I used to, when my family, we used to joke as kids, you know. How can the constitution be based on the fact that there was no one here before colonisation when clearly my family, we were here forever, you know? Um, it didn't really make sense. So, but that decision's overturned. So, um, and then um, even preceding Mabo decision and the Native Title Acts that were in, in place at the federal and the state levels now, um, but previously to that, um, going back to, to Menzi, I think, um, in the Northern Territory, um, where there's a lot of people, a lot of Aboriginal people still living on their traditional lands. Um, there's a unique piece of legislation, federal legislation, called the um, Northern Territory Land Rights Act, basically, um, you know, uh, recognising that the land has always been occupied by Aboriginal people and there's an ownership over that land. So basically leading from either native title determinations linked to the Mabo decision or through, you know, the Federal Government Land Rights Acts, which apply to the Northern Territory and to the very remote northern um, aspects of South Australia, uh, where they have the Ananu Pitinjari Yudajari lands, the APY lands. Uh, there's vast tracts of Australia that are, you know, 
owned by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander groups. Um, and with that land ownership, of course, comes a revenue stream. And so in certain cases, that revenue stream has been building up over time. Revenue streams to draw from what? So say um, some of my family um, live at um, our traditional owners of um, Uluru, um, so Murujula. So Uluru's just recently celebrated a significant milestone of being handed back to the community for, I think it's 30 years now. Like I, I remember um, going with my mother to the handback ceremony. I think it was 87 or 88 or something. I need to you know, actually look up the date. But it was, you know, when I was younger, I was about 10 or you know, 15 or something. Um, so my family went and it was quite a significant um, event for the Aboriginal communities. So we own the National Park basis. And so they get revenue from tourists? That's it. We basically own and manage the National Park. So when uh, the tourists come in, and, you know, Uluru is arguably um, Australia's one of Australia's most famous tourist destinations. Um, when tourists go to the National Park, um, they pay a park entry fee. That park entry fee goes to running the National Park, so providing all the amenities and services, um, making sure it's you know, managed environmentally, but also managed culturally, and in recognition of the land ownership, um, some of that fee will then be returned to the traditional owners. And then there are the ESG funds from super. Definitely, there's you know, um, many um, you know, of our super funds you know, now provide the option. Um, you know, would you like to invest your superannuation in um, you know, equities, um, real estate, or ESG-type funds? Some of our early research, going back a couple of years, um, indicated that in Australia there was pro- potentially more um, funds that were earmarked for ESG investments than there were actually reliable, solid ESG investments to be made. So that's part of our early work. We were actually like looking at br- finding or developing ESG investments so that other investors can invest in. Um, we've moved on from that, that model, yeah. So what sort of investments can they make under the fund? Under the fund? Or, under the fund. So our fund is um, specifically limited to infrastructure. And it, depending on your financial background, you either refer to it as um, infrastructure or social infrastructure or core and core plus. Um, so it's basically um, infra- infrastructure is distinct from equities investments, of course, you're investing in stocks. Or um, business investments, which some people would say was you know a VC style of investment. Infrastructure is in you know hard assets, bricks and mortar facilities um, that are typically underwritten by pretty long term um, contracts to deliver that service. So it's it's quite common for infrastructure, say um, investment in power generation to be underwritten by at least a 10-year contract to provide a certain quality power, a certain amount of power over a defined period of time, Um, which then makes infrastructure typically a a safer investment that can be counter-cyclical to the market. And so we're really here talking about investments in water, power and housing. Definitely. So we have... um, already identified many investments and some right through to, still in the concept phase, right through to pre-feasibility, feasibility, and now, you know, execution, about to, you know, execute on a project. 
and they range from things like, you know, out in the remote regions, access to clean drinking water and reliable electricity is an issue. It's still an issue today. And I think that issue still persists even despite um, quite considerable government expenditure. What's really exciting about this is it's not just for remote communities. It could also apply to communities in Sydney and Melbourne, which are in need. In need, yeah, that's right. And it's maybe a slightly different need. So when we talk about, you know, the investments that we currently have in the metro regions, it's like providing um, an investment in a medical hub that um, will provide better medical services to the Aboriginal community, but also it improves the efficiency of that services, which actually realises a lower cost position or subsidy requirement by, you know, the Department of Health and the like. So actually we can provide a better medical service, but at a more efficient basis. So it's actually a win-win for the, you know, the typical funders of that service. And then we also get a more a more holistic delivery of health services as well. What a wonderful notion that is, because it really does empower the Indigenous communities, doesn't it? It definitely does, and it empowers at a couple of different levels. One of the aspects that we um, set up with with our fund is that we are specifically targeting that we raise 50% of the capital required from Indigenous investors this indigenous capital so they rather than having the, their capital deployed in stocks and bonds or in sitting in term deposits they're actually helping to actively address some of the social issues and um, of course when we run the asset the medical center or electricity um, a key component of what we specifically offer over a typical infrastructure investor is that we will work with the Indigenous community to make sure uh, the, you know, a lot of those services in management or asset management and care and maintenance, um, the maintenance services are delivered by the community. So there's direct involvement at many levels, both from the ownership um, through to the operation stage as well. So the community will have a role in managing it? That's right. Different roles, you know, it depends asset to asset and then the... Um, you know, the types of services, because, of course, managing a medical hub is different from, you know, maintaining a renewable energy project, but... But it's all, it's all possible. It's all possible. One of the things that's, you know, that's a lot of people don't realise, and I've, I've seen it through my personal life and, and uh, my professional life, that I don't think... I think today there's not one single profession where we don't have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people working at quite, you know... Senior, senior level. So Aboriginal community, Indigenous community, we can deliver everything that's required. We don't have scale and we may be new to that type of business, but, um, you know, given the opportunity and, and maybe even bringing the different, you know, um, community-based mindset to the delivery of those services actually results in a better outcome for all anyway. Well, Chris Croker, that is just fantastic and congratulations and that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, yeah, look forward to speaking again soon. And now let's talk to Comsec economist Craig James. Okay, well, Craig, what can we expect from the markets this week? Well, it's going to be a very interesting uh, week. Um, 
I suppose we're a little bit light on in, in terms of the amount of uh, information, yeah, top shelf type you know, sort of economic information. So really we don't have any indicators like uh, retail spending or building approvals. You know, so, but I suppose what the, the focus will be is on the Reserve Bank board minutes you know, so on, on Tuesday. Now, these are the minutes from the the um, meeting which decided to, to cut interest rates for the first time in all, almost three years. So it's going to be an interesting discussion to be able to see what the Reserve Bank board members were discussing at the, that time, uh, what, what they're thinking, and, and perhaps in, in terms of their, their future plans. But um, uh, that, um, uh, those board minutes come out on Tuesday. We've got the uh, house price index, uh, the residential price index is uh, from the Bureau of Statistics also out on Tuesday. That's very much backward looking. We, we're know that the world has changed since the, the federal election. Uh, if you look at the core logic figures, uh, we've actually seen gains in home prices in places like Melbourne, Sydney and Adelaide uh, since the, the election. So uh, to look back at the, the March quarter really isn't going to provide you know, too much information. But um, uh, yeah, I think the, the highlights this week are the board minutes coming out on Tuesday. The other highlight you know, is the skilled vacancy figures on Wednesday. We do know now that the Reserve Bank is really focused on, on the job market, the expectation about um, where employment is going. Certainly that's provided by skilled vacancies, one of the leading indicators of the job market. Uh, and it has been a little bit soft you know, sort of in, in recent months as well, but um, we'll be looking some early indicators whether you know, sort of we're seeing a pickup in, in terms of uh, future employment. Of course, if we do get a pickup in, in terms of employment, it looks as though the unemployment rate's coming down, then the, the Reserve Bank will be keen to stay on the interest rate sideline. Of course, we had right. the unemployment figures from last week. Well, we certainly did. And um, uh, the, uh, the problem, I suppose, with the, the, the unemployment figures, you know, the, the monthly figures that come out from the, the Bureau of Statistics, is they are somewhat backward-looking rather than forward-looking. Um, if, if some uh, business is going to um, put on uh, staff, it basically makes the decision, then it goes through the, the hiring process and uh, uh, by the time that the person has got on uh, to, to the uh, staffing levels, you know, so it may be something like uh, five or six months after the initial decision. So um, uh, we can't rely too much in terms of the, uh, the the job figures coming out from the Bureau of Statistics. I think we have to be forward-looking. I think that's something the, the Reserve Bank certainly needs to to, uh, to do, and that, that's why skilled vacancies, yes, you know, are going to be important. Of course, yes, you know, so the other thing to, to focus on, yes, in the coming week is um, on Thursday we've got a speech by the Reserve Bank Governor. Now, uh, clearly he's trying to provide a lot more information than he has in the past. He gave us that clear indication that interest rates uh, were going to come down and he followed through on that in terms of uh, cutting interest rates. So um, what we have on Thursday is the Reserve Bank Governor giving a speech and he's giving that speech after the employment figures coming out from the Bureau of Statistics, the board minutes are out on Tuesday and the skilled vacancies on Wednesday. So if he's going to send a signal that we'll get another interest rate cut um, in July, we may get that signal on Thursday. Well, indeed, the market is actually factoring in another, at least one other interest rate cut, and some are even saying there'll be a third in February. Yeah, I think some of the economists are getting a little bit far in front of themselves. Um, uh, our view is that the, the Reserve Bank perhaps can do a little bit more, but um, I think what we've also got to remember is that the world did change on May the 18th. Yes, the, the new economy started May the 19th, 
so um, if Labor had have got in, into power, there may have been changes in terms of taxation. Yes, there may have been changes in terms of negative gearing and capital gains tax and in terms of uh, franking credits. Those you know, proposals clearly yes, are not going to be advanced now with uh, the coalition government in charge. Um, and um, I think what we immediately saw is that you know, people said, OK, we've got um, the government that we're used to. It's back to business. And yes, and now we can yes, go forward with the, you know, a lot more certainty. And you know, of course, there had been concerns about the, the election. It could have been a very close affair. It could have been you know, sort of hung parliament. But we've got a clear result now. And um, uh, yeah, the hope is that the, um, uh, the Labor opposition will start supporting some of the um, coalition's plans. Um, I think the coalition does have a, a mandate to be able to put through its tax changes. And um, uh, I think you know, a lot of businesses, a lot of investors and consumers would you know, love that certainly you know, those tax cuts being um, passed so they can you know, sort of, um, plan, plan ahead. But um, uh, I think now we've just got to be you know, sort of mindful that um, you know, the economy you know, sort of has gone through that soft spot. We're coming out the, the other side and the Reserve Bank's got to be careful that it doesn't overstate stimulate the economy because we do know that uh, taxes uh, are going to be uh, cut. Uh, we do know that you know, sort of APRA has made some changes in terms of mortgage serviceability. So um, um, the, fa the fact that um, the Reserve Bank has also you know, cut interest rates shows that you know, so there's a lot of stimulus you know, being put into the economy at the current time. So you would expect uh, property prices will start increasing or that they've bottomed out? Well, I think they have bottomed. You know, sort of as to whether you know, sort of we're going to see a significant rise, um, it gets down to the supply demand balance. Um, there's still a fair bit of supply to come on in terms of the Sydney, you know, sort of Melbourne markets in particular. But um, uh, we do know in you know, sort of the, the buoyant days when there was strong demand for for homes and they weren't being supplied, you know, so the supply you know, sort of did respond. But of course, supply always responds with a bit of a lag. So we've got to wait for the um, new homes to, to be built and you know, sort of uh, that um, uh, significant increase uh, to, to go th through and then come out the other side. But um, what we do know since the election that um, investors are out again kicking tyres, uh, they're going to provide a bit of competition for first home buyers. And we do know in terms of the, the core logic data that since the election that we have had some gains in um, uh, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, you know, sort of prices. Um, overall, we're continuing to see gains in places like Canberra and you know, sort of Hobart. So there, there are more and more signs that home prices are bottom. You know, whether they run along the bottom there for a period of time you know, remains to be seen you know, sort of as we uh, go through that supply-demand balance. But um, uh, if we do get you know, sort of much more in increase in terms of demand from investors and owner-occupiers, then we could start to see those home prices creeping higher. Well, that'd be interesting. And, of course, the markets had a big boost from what's happening in the, on Wall Street as well. Wall Street's been having a good run. Well, certainly we, we have seen some good gains in terms of the share market. It is quite interesting. You look at the Australian uh, share market. Uh, the Australian share market has outperformed the US market uh, so far the, this year. So we've had gains around about 12% for, for the US and Dow Jones. Uh, for the Australian share market, we've seen gains of over 14%. Now, when you add in dividends, total returns on shares so far this year in Australia have increased by around about 16%. Now, 
Um, of course, what you'd say, well, you know, so that's just a six-month period. Is that going to be a 32% gain for the full year? Well, I think we'd probably be getting a little bit far ahead of ourselves if we, you know, sort of took that view. Um, but um, uh, certainly, you know, sort of those people who are concerned about um, uh, their home price, you know, sort of being flat or, you know, sort of falling, you know, sitting in price, uh, perhaps they should need to look at their superannuation statements, you know, so of course we have seen uh, the share market rising, total returns on shares have also been increasing, that adds to, to, to people's wealth levels. So in view of what's been happening with uh, the coalition being re-elected and uh, the end to tax uncertainty and uh, home prices seem to bottom out, uh, you, you'd expect the market would keep on rising. Mm. Would that be right? Well, optimism seems to be you know, sort of uh, jumping out all over. You know, sort of, so um, uh, I, I would have thought um, the last bit of the puzzle, I suppose, you know, sort of, um, globally, is the, the US-China trade situation. Now, if we can get resolution in the US-China trade uh, situation, well, uh, then we'll have you know, so all the components working you know, sort of for us. It's interesting, you, you look in the United States at the moment, there is this expectation that's getting built in that interest rates will be cut in the United States uh, later th- this year. So um, it's not just us here in Australia that uh, has been cutting rates or looking to cut rates. Uh, it is happening in other parts of the globe, and it reflects you know, sort of a mid-cycle slowdown in terms of the expansion. Uh, the fact that um, uh, we, we have had... Um, uh, a bit of a stalling, and I think we can you know, sort of attribute that stalling to the uh, U.S.-China uh, trade negotiations, the, the um, uh, discussions there, the tariff war that they've been applying against one another. Um, we get that one out of the road. Well, you just have to wonder what would stop you know, not just the Australian economy but, but the global economy. And um, uh, clearly in investors... Uh, don't like uncertainty. If you get rid of you know, so that uh, those last elements of uh, uncertainty, um, shares uh, are likely to move ahead, particularly you know, sort of um, on the expectation that um, uh, interest rates stable or perhaps you know, it's a little bit lower, you know, and um, an improvement in terms of certainty for for businesses to to invest, spend, and employ. Well, Craig, thank you very much for your update on what we can expect from the market this week ahead. Thank thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Donald Trump, the US president, has warned Xi Jinping, his Chinese counterpart, that a new round of tariffs would be levied on the country's goods if the two leaders failed to meet at the G20 summit in Japan. As trade tensions continued to simmer between Washington and Beijing, in an interview with CNBC on Monday, Mr Trump said he believed there would be a bilateral meeting with Mr Xi on Osaka on the sidelines of the world leaders' gathering later this month. The meeting has been widely seen as a chance for a new truce between the US and China. He also renewed his attacks on the Fed and suggested a US ban on Huawei may be scrapped as part of a trade deal. And global finance ministers failed to forge a way forward out of the $250 billion US-China trade dispute at the G20 in Japan with a group of 20 finance leaders declaring that trade and geopolitical tensions have intensified, but failing to express a pressing need to resolve them. The ministers also agreed to compile common rules to close loopholes used by global tech giants such as Facebook to reduce their corporate taxes. Facebook, Google, Amazon and other large technology firms face criticism for cutting their tax bills by booking profits in low-tax countries regardless of the location of the end customer. Such practices are seen by many as unfair. 
The new rules would mean higher tax burdens for large multinational firms, but would also make it harder for countries like Ireland to attract foreign direct investment with the promise of ultra-low corporate tax rates. However, rocky negotiations nearly aborted the issuance of the communique before the finance ministers and central bank governors gathered in Fukuoka in southern Japan, and the firm language on trade issued in Buenos Aires last December. Global growth appears to be stabilising and is generally projected to pick up moderately later this year and into 2020, the final draft reportedly said. However, growth remains low and risks remain tilted to the downside. Most importantly, trade and geopolitical tensions have intensified. We will continue to address these risks and stand ready to take further action, the communique said. The Buenos Aires G20 summit in December 2018 launched a five-month trade truce between the United States and China to allow for negotiations to end their deepening trade war. But those talks hit an impasse last month, prompting both sides to impose higher tariffs on each other's goods as the conflict nears the end of its first year. The G20 finance leader's final communique language excluded a proposed clause to recognise the pressing need to resolve trade tensions from a previous draft that was debated on Saturday. The deletion, which G20 sources said came at the insistence of the United States, shows a desire by Washington to avoid encumbrances as it increases tariffs on goods. The statement also contains no omissions that the deepening US-China trade conflict was hurting global growth. The International Monetary Fund warned last week that the trade conflict would cut global growth next year and financial markets had sold off heavily as US-Sino ties soured. And Australia should unilaterally cut trade barriers, remove nuisance tariffs and review millions of dollars in assistance to farmers, the government's top economic advisory body has found, as it warns the world trading system is under greater strain than at any time since the 1930s. A day after global finance ministers failed to forge a way forward out of the $250 billion US-China trade dispute at the G20 in Japan, the Productivity Commission said Australia must lead by example by ditching anti-dumping measures and encouraging foreign investment by removing regulations. The Commission said Australia has continued to retreat into protectionism in some areas through $14.4 billion in annual assistance to industries that lowered its international competitiveness. And Australia's private sector is losing momentum, with business conditions well below average and weakening further according to the National Australia Bank's monthly business survey. Business confidence jumped from zero to seven in May following the election and indications of a looming rate cut. But business conditions fell to one, well below average levels and 20 points off last year's recent peak. Retail, mining, transport and utilities were the main sectors which drove the business conditions result lower in just a month. But the weaker trend is more noticeable over a two-month period, with a six-point fall since March. From a longer-term perspective, business conditions are about 20 points below their early 2018 peak. The downbeat result was largely weighed down by a decline in trading, down five points, and profitability, down four points in May. And key Senate crossbenchers will demand the government come up with a plan to stop Australia's abhorrent energy price rises before supporting the coalition's signature $158 billion income tax cuts in Parliament. The government will need to convince both Centre Alliance and One Nation to back the three-stage 10-year package without the support of Labor. It had hoped the personal briefings from RBA Governor Philip Lowe and Treasury Executives in Adelaide last week would sway the crossbench votes its way.
But the two Central Alliance senators weren't persuaded that the government had made the case that the tax cuts alone were in the economy's best interest. They will now give the government's chief negotiator, Finance Minister Matthias Cormann, less than three weeks to pull together an energy proposal to ensure power price rises do not wipe out the benefit of tax cuts worth between $1,000 and $4,000 a year for middle-income earners over the next five years. Central Alliance Senator Rex Patrick said if disposal income was consumed by rising power prices, you would effectively nullify the advantage of a tax cut. And Labor, meanwhile, is standing firm on its demand for the Morrison government to split the bill for income tax cuts, as the coalition calls for the Senate to respect the verdict of voters and pass the package in full. Amid the standoff between the coalition and Labor over the government's key election pledge, the passage of the legislation would come down to cross-bench senators who were leaving open the possibility of supporting the plan. On Monday, Pauline Hanson indicated she would oppose the third stage of the government's $158 billion tax cut package, saying she was not sold on the economic argument of the boost for higher income earners. She called on the government to prioritise nation-building projects, naming a coal-fired power station, the Bradfield Water Scheme first proposed in the 1930s, and a royal commission into the family court system as key to her support. And Australians! who rely on earning interest from their savings will be the biggest losers after the Reserve Bank slash rates to a record low last week. A total of $526 billion is currently held in savings account across the nation, according to a report by financial comparison website Fino. It also found that households may lose around $1.3 billion in interest from their term deposits and savings accounts if the banks pass on the full rate of a cut of 0.25 percentage points. The hardest hit groups will be those saving for their first home or retirees relying on their savings as a form of income, said Graham Cook, Finder's Insights Manager. Mortgage borrowers, on the other hand, are the main beneficiaries of lower rates, even though many lenders opted not to pass on the full cut. In the last two months, more than 50 banks have already lowered their term deposit rates. And interest rates on more than 80% of savings and 44% of termed accounts are below the headline rate of inflation, with more cuts on the way following last week's reduction in cash rate, University of New South Wales analysis shows. The record low rates are a blow to 3 million households that rely on interest rates to make ends meet, such as retirees and other pensioners, and will force more than 1 million households to dip into their capital, according to analysts. These negative real rates are also expected to force many savers from cash into riskier investments, ranging from housing to stocks, particularly high-dividend-paying income stocks, in search of a bigger return. And West Farmers has outlaid $230 million to buy one of Australia's oldest and largest online retailers, Catch Group, from founders Gabby and Hezi Lebovich. West Farmers has entered into an agreement to buy Catch Group for $230 million cash to accelerate the conglomerate's digital and e-commerce capabilities. Catch Group, which operates an online marketplace and owns sites such as Catch of a Day, Mumgo, Grocery Run and Scoopon, will operate as an independent business unit overseen by Kmart Managing Director Ian Bailey. And AGL Energy has issued a $3.1 billion proposal to acquire telecommunications company Vocus Group a week after takeover talks with a Swedish private equity player fell through. Under the proposal, AGL would buy all of Vocus shares at $4.85 each, 40 cents lower than the offer that private equity EQT infrastructure brought to the table in May. The bid would value Vocus at some $3 billion. And casino giant, the Star Entertainment Group, aims to cut as much as $50 million from its cost base 
after warning a soft economy would mean its fiscal 2019 underlying earnings will fall below last year's result. The Star said on Tuesday it expects normalised earnings before interest tax, depreciation and amortisation, which are just for lucky streaks for neither the house nor punters, for the year ending June 30 would be between $550 million and $560 million, below the $568 million posted last year. And Eric Beach's private media has launched its new investigative journalism team, INQ, with a staff of 12, two editors and 10 journalists, who will focus on deep reporting across a range of topic areas as an extension of independent digital news publisher Crikey. Subscribers to Crikey will have access to INQ. Mr Beecher, a former editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, said the new division had more than 800 applicants for the 12 positions at INQ. Six-time Walkley winner Suzanne Smith has been brought in as consulting editor while former Chief of Staff at Networks 10 The Project, Lauren Molan, will be Inquiry Editor. The team of journalists will include David Hardacre, Janine Carlick, Kirsten Drysdale, Emily Watkins, Georgia Wilkins, Justine Landis-Hanley, Charlie Lewis, Kishore Napier-Rahman, Amber Schultz and Chris Woods. INQ marks the return of the storied Fairfax family to the media sector. Marinia Capital, the family investment office for John B. Fairfax and Nicholas Fairfax, has invested in the INQ venture along with Cameron Riley. The Fairfax family ended its association with Fairfax Media, which has now merged with Nine in 2011, when Nicholas Fairfax left the publisher's board of directors and the family's stake in the business was sold. And the chief executive of waste management group CleanAway says a pioneering trial of electric rubbish trucks in a council area in Melbourne is showing some promising signs in its early stages. The electric trucks have a range of 180 kilometres before they need to be recharged, and the first has been operating for the past few weeks in the city of Hobson's Bay, which covers 12 suburbs in western Melbourne. CleanAway Chief Executive Vic Bunsell said there were good signs on the operating costs for the vehicles for curbside collections because they need to be kept low for the technology to be viable in the long term. And global ride-sharing giant Uber has named Melbourne as one of three locations around the world for its aerial taxi service trial. The service would use a network of small and electric aircraft using vertical takeoff and landing technology. A 2016 paper proposed using car park roofs and existing helipads to run the service. The Civil Aviation Safety Authority previously said the project was possible and could be introduced within five years. The company's Uber Air Pilot, which will also run in the US cities of Dallas and Los Angeles, aims to connect transport hubs like airports to central city sites. The rideshare company said test flights were due to start from 2020 and plans were for commercial operations to commence from 2023. The announcement was made at the company's Elevate Summit in Washington after sealing the deal with Melbourne Airport and companies Macquarie Capital, Centre Group and Telstra. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Daniel Lay, the CEO of cybersecurity firm ArchTIS, which has secured endorsement from the Digital Transformation Agency for its Cogency Gov offering, which provides security for government networks. It will be a great conversation about hacking and cybersecurity. And then I talk to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver, looking at what's ahead in the markets. And of course, I'll be bringing you all the week's news. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Have a great week. Take care. Be good. And looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. 
One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 